Welcome to Innovate at Open, the podcast that explores open source through the lenses of distributed collaboration, collective invention, and technology creation. I'm your host, Gordon Half, technology evangelist with Red Hat. Hi, everyone. I'm Gordon Half, technology evangelist with Red Hat, and I'm here today with Irving Wodalski-Berger, who I've known for many years uh, when he was at IBM and have kept in touch since, and we're going to talk about artificial intelligence. Irving, can you please introduce yourself? Yes. My name is Irving Wodalski-Berger. I worked at IBM for many years. Uh, I retired from IBM in 2007, but remained a consultant for another until 2011. And I've been affiliated with MIT uh, since 2005 as visiting lecturer in the Sloan School of Management and a research affiliate. I've known Gordon, as he said, uh, since I was at IBM. And then we kept meeting each other once a year at the MIT CIO Symposium, uh, where at least we could meet in person and say hello to each other. And hopefully we'll be able to do that again next year. You know, we kind of got to talking over email the other day, and it turned out that you had recently published a blog post, which basically overlapped with a presentation I gave a few weeks ago. So I absolutely had to get you on, and I want to catch up with you anyway. So you recently published a blog post, Will AI Ever Be Smarter Than a Baby? I was intrigued because it touched on themes that I'd been starting to explore. And in that post, one of the things you got into is the question of, what is intelligence, which seems to go well beyond what's covered by deep learning. And you know, I do have to say at this point, and I'm going to be very, very simplistic, but deep learning is essentially a 1980s technique that we've made the hardware good enough for it to actually be something useful. So talk a little bit about some of the notions you had in that blog post. First of all, I think the achievements of AI have been nothing short of phenomenal. And I think the achievements of machine learning and deep learning have been really, really good. But we should think about it in its place, which is it's a, an incredibly good method of quote-unquote teaching a, an algorithm how to do something based on looking for patterns in data. So you are training an algorithm by having lots and lots and lots of data annotated cat, not cat, apple, not apple, and so on, And then, rather than you having to explicitly program what you want the algorithm to do, which we don't know how to do in the sense of recognizing a cat or an apple, you just say, 
I'm going to so show you millions and millions of pictures and then you algorithm figuring out what makes a cat a cat or an apple an apple. It's an incredibly powerful tool and the tool has been applied in all kinds of very important tasks, including speech recognition, image recognition, detection of skin cancers, the detection of, of, of very small starting breast cancers. And, and so it's been really good, you know, let alone achievements like playing championship golf, which is a very difficult game. Now, Gordon, now we get into a question that philosophical, Talmudic, which is, but Irving is artificial intelligence, intelligence in the sense that we apply it to humans. And a few years ago, I wrote something else in my blog about intelligence. And I wanted to see what do we mean by intelligence? I looked up definitions. And one of the things that I found doing my, my search online is that in 1994, the Wall Street Journal published a definition of intelligence which reflected the consensus of 52 leading academic researchers in fields associated with intelligence. So let me read you that definition. Intelligence is a very general mental capability that, among other things, involves the ability to reason, plan, solve problems, think abstractly, comprehend complex ideas, learn quickly, and learn from experience. It is not merely book learning, a narrow academic skill, or test-making smarts. Rather, it reflects a broader and deeper capability for comprehending our surroundings, catching up, making sense of things, or figuring out what to do. So that was the consensus definition. What I concluded when I saw that, and I wrote in my blog, is that this is a very good definition of general intelligence, which is the kind of intelligence that's long been measured in IQ tests, and that now, and for the foreseeable future, only humans have. So that's a long answer <laughs> to the question, what is intelligence? Well, I think that's central, though, to this kind of conversation we're having, though, because I think we, you know, we need to understand what AI is before we can discuss, you know, what's been done, what needs to be done, how how might we get there? You know, is AI just deep learning? Is it just that marvelous Google Maps route optimization? Or is it Skynet? And I think that, you know, that kind of last point gets to 
something that you you were sort of saying before we uh, started recording here is that I think AI, as you've indicated, is this very uh, powerful, transformative digital technology right now. I mean, actually where I see us being with machine learning and AI right now, deep learning, is that we've kind of, I wouldn't say we've solved deep learning, but we've... um, we made a, we've made a lot of advance, and I think we're actually in the phase right now where we're applying it to business problems. Uh, yes. You know, if I had to seriously, we're early. By the way, we're early in that phase. Uh, no, absolutely. And you know, we could. There's lots of other transformative digital technologies out there. Well, but but I would put AI, and and by the way, a number of people that I would put who've been studying this more than me at MIT that I hang out with, agree with that AI at the moment is probably the most transformative technology of the 21st century. Now, what do we mean by transformative? And Eric Brynjolfsson, whom I'm sure you know who he is, he just, he left for Stanford uh, this year, but was at MIT before and was the founder and director of the Initiative on the Digital Economy, where I I am a fellow, a transformative technology is one that is general purpose and you can do lots and lots of things with it. Let me give you a few examples so that you know that AI, when I say it's transformative, is in very good company. (laughs) The steam engine of the Industrial Mm. Revolution, electricity, the internet, AI. So you have to agree that if the two of us put AI in the company of steam engine, electricity, and the internet, we are showing it tremendous respect, even though... Neither of us says, well, but it's only a small step from where it is to human intelligence. We don't mean any disrespect when we say that. Right. And I think in some ways we have been seduced a bit by the great progress that we've seen. And you're absolutely correct. It's, it's, been, it's been amazing. You know, No one thought Go was ever, I won't say ever, but Go was one of these great hard problems, and suddenly reinforcement learning and a powerful and powerful enough computers. It's it's solved, and I, I'm trivializing the accomplishment. But image recognition, particularly in fairly bounded cases, the various medical diagnostic uh, things that you've been saying. You know, the interesting thing, and I'm stealing this from Josh uh, Tenenbaum at MIT, Mm -hmm. but he has this idea of there being two notions of intelligence. And the first one is classifying, recognizing, uh, and predicting data. And machine learning is very good at that. 
Right. Humans, uh, humans can be pretty good at that too, particularly right. particularly if it's not just numbers, particularly if we can easily perceive patterns, for example, with our visual cortexes, because knowing that is a cheetah running after you was rather important uh, for early humans. But Tenenbaum then goes on to say there was really a second complementary form of intelligence, which is explaining, understanding, and modeling the world. And the example he gives is sort of, if you think in in, um, astronomy, Kepler's laws are essentially a, a pattern. You know, we mm-hmm. we know the data. We had all the data. He had all the data from Tycho Brahe, and he put together. And okay, things are in ellipses like this, but he didn't know why they were there. That took mm-hmm. basically Isaac Newton in order to do it. And Tannenbaum argues that I, I think I agree with him that the two things are complementary, but the able to explain the world is really a much more powerful notion. One thing that I wrote in this latest blog that you mentioned on AI, which, you know, the the blog was based on the research of Berkeley psychologist Alison Gopnik. And she had written a number of books on this question of intelligence. And she's a psychologist at Berkeley, but then I guess maybe a decade ago, she started hanging out with the AI community in Berkeley. So she's she's like Josh Tenenbaum. In fact, I think she's written papers with Josh on cognitive sciences, but, but she's also hanging out with uh, people and with the computer scientists. And... Um, One of the things I learned from some of her writings is that, you know, Alan Turing, who we all, I think, know what he is, but as famous, you know, and and impactful on the world of computing, as you can imagine, and he's best known for the Turing test, which is you see that a computer and you are having texting with, quote-unquote, somebody else at the other computer, and you ask it questions, it replies, and if you cannot tell the difference as to whether you're interacting with a human or an AI at the other end, then the AI is said to have passed the Turing test that you couldn't tell. However, in addition to to the Turing test, Turing also wrote in the same paper (laughs) that the key to achieving intelligence was the ability to learn, that human intelligence is our ability to learn. And in fact, and and this gets back to the comparison with babies and so on, Turing made the suggestion that if we ever wanted to design a learning machine, we should do that not in the way adults learn, but in the way 
babies and very young children learn. The reason being that, you know, by the time you get to be adults, I don't know, there are certain patterns of learning and often it's more analytical and, and you know, more absorbing stuff. But what uh, cognitive scientists like Josh Tannenbaum, Alison Gobnik and others are amazed is that where it takes huge amounts of data to teach a AI algorithm to recognize a cat, it takes very little data <laughs> to yep. teach a baby to recognize a cat, a dog, a rhinoceros, or anything else. Very little data. So what's going on? No, exactly. I mean, and, you know, the, the joke I like to make when... I'm making a similar point in presentation is a baby doesn't learn what a cup is or a cat is by sticking them in a skitter box and showing them a hundred thousand different cats and cups. I mean, we don't learn that way. What way Tenenbaum and I know he's getting a lot of airtime here, but I, I really well, like some of his work. And, yeah. And so on. Yeah, and he talks about learning as Theory building, not data analysis. Model, yeah, I think of it as model building. Model building, yeah. In, and in fact, I would um, say that I, my expectation is that the reason babies can build models with so little information, and in fact, the reason just about any animal in the animal kingdom can do it is evolution and natural selection. That those animals that cannot learn quickly when they are young get eaten up and don't get to reproduce. So to acquire the ability to survive and be able to, to then reproduce and so on, one of the critical things that evolution selects for is this ability to learn quickly, form a common sense view of the world, what's dangerous, what's not, who is going to take care of you, who are tribe, etc., etc., etc. And that's very, very human, but for the foreseeable future, I don't see deep learning getting anywhere near anything like that. That's my expectation. Well, and then there's also the the idea that we live in a physical world that we have experience with. That some level we understand that physical world. Uh, you know, if you know, we see something flying overhead, and we think, well, you know, it looks kind of like a pig, but we we know as humans, no, it isn't a pig. I mean, that seems like a very unlikely occurrence. No, well, that I would say that's what we would call common sense. Yeah. Humans, including very young babies, have a certain common, like gravity. I think Alison Gobnik in one of her papers talks about babies learn very quickly about gravity in the sense that if they drop something, it goes down. And they don't know the law of gravity, they don't know Newton's laws, whatever, but they learn that if you don't hold on to something, it will fall. And you don't have to show them millions of examples. They pick it up very quickly. 
Yeah, I mean, they, they sort of develop um, intuitive physics, if you would. You know, yeah, they're. Yeah, so, you know, yeah, no, no, oh, well, if I stack the blocks too high, they're going to fall over. No, they can't do a static analysis, you know, uh, of it. But I wonder if intuitive physics is another name for the common sense you need to survive. Yeah, yeah. It's is understanding the world, you know, world around you, and yeah, and and you know, you develop Bayesian priors, you know, I, I'm, which are not always correct. It's, the world is statistical, but you know, yeah. I I can probably be fairly confident that if I put my foot forward, you know, on the sidewalk, I'm not suddenly going to go through the sidewalk. Right, uh, right, 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 and and. And by the way, we don't let babies learn, children learn. For example, you don't want them to learn that how to cross the street through trial and error. <laughs> right. Um, that, 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 you, you, may learn, you may let them learn a few things, trial and error, as long as it doesn't yeah. hurt them. Other things they learn because the parents will us here, whatever. Don't touch here. the red, sto- the red uh, thing in the stove. You know, exactly. yeah, exactly. And but but what's interesting here is that in my mind, uh, for the foreseeable future, if we accept AI is wonderful tool, like. The internet is a wonderful tool, like smartphones are wonderful tool, like blockchain, uh, you know, is a wonderful tool. Cloud computing, which you are very involved in, given your position, is a, that that's good enough for our purposes. Now, we can also continue to be doing research on cognitive science and do experiments, but there, but at that point, you're doing more cognitive science than engineering, is what I would say. Yeah. yeah. But in some ways, I think that is also a challenge. I mean, we've made this fantastic process, progress we've already talked about with big linear algebra equations, which is basically what neural mm-hmm. networks are. But, you know, you look at a big white, that big white building on uh, Vassar Street, the McGovern uh, Institute, yeah. for example, for a uh, for brain science, and there's, this has been an area of active research for a very long time. I, I took my at risk of dating myself, but that's okay with you, Irving. Uh, you know, I, I took a 1976 intro to brain science course at MIT with the mm. then head of the brain science department, and there were questions being asked then. It's like, how do we see a face as a face? How do we you know, are there horizontal feature detectors? Are there vertical feature detectors? And things like that. And I'm kind of struck today of we're kind of still asking those questions. Yeah. And it's uh, a great many years later. And, yeah. uh, you know, so this, I'm sure there's been, to an expert in the field, I'm sure there's been you know, progress made here, progress made there. But if we compare and contrast it with the last 10 years, say, of computer science and computer engineering, it doesn't look like there's been a lot. No. Um, you know, to a large extent, it's because 
If what you want to do is to apply AI to help us solve problems, then as a number of people have pointed out, to try to look at AI as human intelligence gets in the way of engineering. Not unlike, you know, mm. if you're designing airplanes, you know, studying how birds fly doesn't help you very <laughs> much. I mean, you can do that as a hobby. And, and that, you know, I mean, there may be aerodynamic things you learn, but, you know, there is an engineering to how birds fly. And, you know, there is an engineering to cars, which is different from training to run uh, the 100 meters dash and so on. And we, 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 we have made, we are in a position now where we can make so much progress in the application of AI for engineering problems that, you know, the, co- the cognitive parts are a, digre- are, a, are a digression for AI. In fact, there have been a number of people that say, you know, c- continuing to compare AI or look at AI in human terms doesn't do neither AI nor the humans any. You know, on the other hand, I think it has put the... The heavy reliance on machine learning, I think, though, has maybe put some limits in progress. So to to your point, Irving, I mean, for years, people were trying to do voice recognition sort of from first principles, if you would, you know, how linguistic theory, that type of thing. And there wasn't really, frankly, very good progress being made. And at some point... Or machine translation. Yeah. Right. By, but but using grammar. Yeah, and but what? But uh, you know, and basically, what happened was people said, "Screw this! Let's use this." Well, it didn't, uh, Gordon. Screw this because it didn't work. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's I, what led to the AI winters. It yeah, didn't work. You know, I, on the other hand, you hit limits, and I think we're seeing this a little bit with autonomous driving, for example. I mean, there was again. Great progress made for you know over a very short period of time. And I think a lot of people were, look how much we've done in five years. Then in the by the you know next five years, this is going to be done. And now it's sort of almost nobody, at least who doesn't have a certain car company, is really out there saying well, it's just a. I, I, I have my my feeling as a technologies about. Um, self-driving is that if you're trying to design self-driving vehicles to drive in the same environment as human-driven vehicles, that's going to get us in trouble all the time. However, if you're designing self-driving vehicles and the environment in which they can operate, that's a very different Mm -hmm. thing. And Notice, for example, that the little trains you take in the airport take you from one terminal to another. Those are, for all intents and purposes, self-driving. But but you wouldn't take them through the streets of Boston. <laughs> and, and, you know, a number of people have said that if you put, um, you know, if you essentially put a... Infrastructure along lanes of of interstate that interact with 
let's say, trucks or cars that have the self-driving technology, but they can only use it in these lanes that they interact with. You know, you can imagine long-distance driving where you essentially get on this lane and you can relax and whatever, but then when it's time to get off, you have to take over and etc. And in fact, I read not so long ago that the Chinese are looking at these kinds of very more pragmatic approaches to self-driving of engineering both the vehicle and the environment on which they should drive. Um, so that that's the part where doing self-driving by trying to emulate how humans sort of do it in whatever environment is the wrong engineering approach. That, 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 that's what gets us in trouble if we don't stand back and say, look, do you want a goddamn self-driving <laughs> thing or do you want to simulate how humans drive? Because those are two different problems. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, my my personal theory is, and you know, how much um, how much infrastructure improvement or change you do to accommodate it. I'm I don't I don't have no idea, but I think you know some form of highway driving under certain conditions. Say under perhaps some limitations, we say, yep, that that's fine, um, but. You know, once you get to the exit, you have to take over. Yeah. I mean, don't forget, Gordon, that when we develop cars, we paved roads. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The cars couldn't go where horses can. So we changed the environment to accommodate the cars designing. And that's my view. Again, I'm saying for the foreseeable future. If you say, well, Irving, what if in 40, 50 years? Who knows? Yeah. But the, the other thing is that technology advances, you know, if eventually things get way too complicated and expensive beyond a certain point, like the supersonic planes, people stop making progress. They said it's not worth it. Yeah. I mean, there needs to be some economics behind the entire, the entire thing. I mean, supersonic Flight is a perfect example of that. Is you know, can you fill a plane with people paying twenty thousand dollars to uh, take a supersonic plane over uh, over the Atlantic? Well, sure. You know, we we quote unquote know how to do it. I mean, obviously yeah. there would be engineering work, but it's it's actually a solved problem. It's really almost purely an economic problem, and and policy economic. with respect to sonic booms and things like yeah. that. But no, 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 exactly, exactly. So, so that partly, if we agree that <laughs> each part of engineering is the economics of engineering, then it could be that. I mean, doing research on human cognition and comparing it to AI, that is wonderful. I'm all for MIT's major college of computing that is doing a lot of work in that area, but that's research. Yeah. But when it comes to actual applications, my expectation is the applications will be much more focused on what you can do that is useful, practical, worth the money, etc. And the good news there is that there, there is a 
ton of yeah and it, yeah i think there is a recognition that over time this probably becomes more multidisciplinary in fact that's yeah. kind of the whole thrust of the new mit artificial intelligence school yeah. that's being put together to maybe close this out irving i'm going to ask put you in the spot and sort of say if you know if we're having this conversation 10 years from now and i ask you you know what surprised you over the last 10 years what didn't surprise you over the last 10 years and what do you think greatest area of advance well the greatest area of advance well i think there is a pretty much an agreement that the reason AI has taken off in the last decade is that three critical things have come together. One is because of online, digital, and everything else, we now have gazillions of data. And I don't just mean text, I mean videos, I mean uh, we have documents in English and the same document in French, so you can feed them to machine learning saying, hey, figure out how you go from English to French, and so we can do translation. We didn't have that data 20 years ago. We just didn't have it. And now we have gigantic amounts of data. And something that also we sometimes forget, humans do a lot of work curating that data before you use it for training. So humans are actually very nice AI uh, by training the data, curating the data, cleaning it up, etc. before you feed it to the AI, which is perfectly fine. Second thing we've gotten is the deep learning algorithm. Machine learning, the deep learning, those have been incredible advances. But none of that would have worked if it wasn't for good old Moore's law, aided <laughs> by all the specialized accelerators Google has done and others have done, which actually they've done very nicely, pretty much open source, most of them. Am I correct? Um, most of the hardware isn't, but the uh, the software is, is pretty much all open source. Yeah, and... You know, I, I've seen that the advances in the ability to compute deep learning algorithms in the last, I don't know, five, eight years are way beyond Moore's like way beyond Moore's law because of all the things there. And that's great. That, I mean, that's what you expect from engineering advances. And then... We've learned to apply it to a whole problem. However, and, and, you know, if you read a lot of work, while the, you know, really leading-edge companies, Googles and Amazons and Facebooks and so on, do extraordinary things with AI, the vast majority of business is still, I don't know, they, they, I don't even know if they are in first base, they certainly are not in third base. Google might be in third base, but the vast majority are, let me say, in first base, aiming for second. And Tom Davenport, you mm. know, um, I'm sure, you know, has done quite a bit of research here and so on. And his advice to companies is, look, why don't you start by applying AI to your process? 
take processes because hopefully you understand them and make them smarter within, with data and then take it from there and then, uh, you know, take it to the next level to start now making some predictions and so on. Don't swing for defenses because for swinging for defenses, um, you know, you need the big puppy equivalent of AIX. And I don't know if most people listening to this will know who Big Papi sure do. <laughs> so you, you need to you need to be A Rod, Big Papi, Derek Jeter. You know, you, you you need to be that skill, that talent is not all that prevalent. So 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 do things. So I will be very happy, Gordon, if ten years from now AI has made a much bigger penetration in business. It's being used in more and more and more uh, areas in business, both to make the business much more efficient, as well as to create whole new kinds of smart products and smart service. Now, you could say, well, Irving, that's all you want? (laughs) Gordon... I would be delighted to get that. Remember, when when I was involved with the internet at IBM in 1995, people said the internet will be transformational, it will transform the whole economy, everything, which I agreed. What I didn't agree is when they said, and it will happen in the next three years. Now, the internet sure as hell has done incredible things, but, you know, it's taking... 20, 25 years, we had to develop, you know, smartphones, which have helped us immensely. Cloud computing has been incredible. And of course, Red Hat played a gigantic role there. And by the way, IoT still is a work in progress. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. I mean, I think the consumer side is almost a distraction at this point. Exactly. Um, and, but, you know, I, I think you're starting to see it at companies. I was at a president, one of Stacey Higginbottom's uh, online conferences where uh, someone from Shell was talking about drones, how they're using all these remote yeah. sensors in their, in their uh, refineries and so forth. But it's, it's you know, it's yeah. very uneven. So, so my, my hope is that what we'll see in AI is it will penetrate deeper into business and government mm-hmm the way the internet has penetrated so much deeper into business and government in the last 25 years. And I think it's harder with AI. The reason is data. And again, you know this very well, I'm sure. The, you know, knowing how to manage data, clean data, uh, make, sure, make sure it's not biased, and on and on and on. And if you don't have good data, then we're back to garbage in, garbage out. And, and you have to have a computing architecture to support all that data That's coming right. in, which is why, there's, why edge computing is such a big deal. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's also where a lot of people are hoping that a lot of the progress in AI will come because of cloud, meaning that you don't have to build 
your AI data center or anything like that. I don't know if anybody's in data anymore. You know much more than I know about that. But a lot of when people are looking at major advances in AI, I think people are, are hoping it's cloud that they get to use and, and the cloud providers will have tools for data sets. Well, I think that's great, Irving, and it has been a lot of fun to have a conversation with you. And I, like you, I hope uh, we can get together in person next year. Thank you for listening to this episode of Innovate at Open. For future episodes, subscribe to Innovate at Open on your favorite podcast app. You could also go bitmason, B-I-T-M-A-S-O-N, dot blogspot.com for show notes, blogs, and a full archive of episodes and more. Thank you for listening. This is Gordon Half, Technology Evangelist at Red Hat.